0: taught on Wednesday night of March 25th, 2020. This week's text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Due to the length of this message and the necessity to fit it into five days of broadcast, we go immediately into today's slice of this week's message entitled, Spirit Baptism and Seeking Gifts. Well, on the Lord's Day, we continued our Studies in First Corinthians, and we finished as we've arrived at chapter twelve. We finished our list of twelve truths about spiritual gifts. If you haven't heard all of that, I suggest you go to our website hbc boiseorg or if you're listening to me here, you also know how to use sermon audio, and you can listen to it there. I also last Sunday surveyed First Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve, I should say. Now. There are three things in this chapter that, that cry out for more attention. I wanted you to get the big picture of chapter 12, so I did that on Sunday, but I want to back up and deal with them tonight. One of these three is rather cryptic, and the other two really aren't cryptic, but they're often misunderstood or misapplied or misused. There was a prevalence of false religions in Corinth long before the Apostle Paul got there. It was a place full of idols, the temple to Diana, we've talked, or Artemis, we've talked about that before as we studied in in 1 Corinthians. But because of all those false religions, and then a whole bunch of people becoming believers in Christ, they brought with them their baggage, and there were... Many uh, phenomena that were practiced in those false religions that came to be confused with the work of the Holy Spirit. So, when Paul uses that phrase in chapter 12, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, he's sending the signal that he's beginning to talk about something that Christians have apparently either asked him about or in some other way he has come to know that they need to be taught. About these things, and we know he had had con- he had, had a correspondence with uh, the people in Corinth and the church there. So probably he's responding to specific questions. Now, in this case, the subject is spiritual gifts. We saw that in verse one. Uh, the Greek there is literally would be the translated the word would be translated uh, spirituals or pneumatica or things of the spirit. The word gifts is added in verse 1 uh, in the translations because of the terms that follow it in the context that describe spiritual gifts. So the first of these three categories that I want to deal with for tonight is in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3, and it has to do with tipping us off to false claims about spiritual gifts. So look at these three verses together. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make, to, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit." It must have been shocking to the Christians in Corinth to realize that some of them were actually doing some of the same things that pagans do in their worship. He said, he wants you to remember, when you were pagans, you were led astray. And he's saying that same thing is going on in some cases now. Some of the Corinthian believers apparently were equating unusual spiritual experiences accompanying spiritual gifts with the same experiences that they had before becoming Christians. Some of those things that have obviously been carried over into the life of the church so that sometimes overtly demonic activity was confused with the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, he says, you can't say Jesus is accursed if you have the Spirit of God, and you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute. I have the Holy Spirit. I just said both of those things, didn't I? So what he means is that can't be your declaration. If you, um, if you are speaking in accordance with the Spirit of God, you don't curse Jesus. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you say, Jesus is Lord. So, Paul gives here, in these first three verses, a a two-fold test for distinguishing between possible demonic activity and the work of the Holy Spirit through spiritual gifts. The first part of it is negative, the second part is positive. The negative test is, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. The word translated accursed is the the word you've probably heard, a Greek word, anathema. That's a uh, a word that means dedicated to God for the purpose of destruction or accursed. Now, it's impossible to know for sure the historical circumstances in which these words would have been spoken in the church in Corinth and approved by anybody in the church in Corinth, in Corinth, but it must have occurred in order for Paul to deem it important enough to mention it in this letter. And that raises several questions. One question, what person made such a statement? So to whom does this test, this negative test, apply? Well, the answer is, whoever made the statement must have been part of the church, must have been a professing Christian. If that weren't the case, then this could have never been attributed to the Holy Spirit. Well, where was this statement made? That's a legitimate question. The answer is, it had to have been made in Christian surroundings, most likely in the public worship service. As we work through chapter 13 and chapter 14, you're going to see there are quite a few barnacles attached to the worship of the, the church in Corinth. The context of this part of the book all has to do with public worship, chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. So it had to be in a, in a public setting. A next obvious question, what was the condition of the person at the time of saying Jesus is accursed? Well, I think the answer to that might sound like it's coming out of left field to you, but most likely, whoever said those words was in a state of ecstasy or outward excitement. It That was the way that pagans in Corinth often conducted themselves. Many facets of false religion teach people to disconnect from the mind, and that's clearly contrary to what the Scriptures uh, tell us to do. So ecstasy, or this feeling of euphoria and being beyond the rational, is another way it might be described, that was considered to be a desirable spiritual state, disconnected from your senses, believing yourself to be totally under the control of fill-in-the-blank whatever pagan deity they had been under the control of. So some people may have taken that that feeling and it's a very can be a very powerful, very emotional kind of a thing, but it's definitely not Christian. And later on, Paul is going to thoroughly condemn such practices for Christians. Uncontrolled emotionalism, clearly not from God. That was apparently the source of this pronouncing a curse on Jesus and doing it in the name of the Holy Spirit. So, it's legitimate to ask, how could such a thing be said of Jesus? Where could this have come from? Well, that word anathema is a Greek translation of a Hebrew term. And the best theory, I call it a proposed explanation probably comes from Deuteronomy 21:23 that says he who is hanged upon a tree is accursed from God you know of that being spoken in conjunction with Jesus so we know that in Corinth there was at least some element of the teaching of the of the judaizers that apparently arose from probably that group that claimed to follow Peter. They were apparently the most Jewish of those sects. Uh, And so you can see how a Gentile believer could have heard this terminology and made a declaration about Jesus thinking maybe he was describing how Jesus bore our sins. Can you see the connection? He was on the cross... He was on a tree, if you will, and He bore our sins, therefore He took on the punishment for our sins, therefore He handled the curse upon sin, and maybe a misguided person could actually believe He was saying something about Jesus when He says, Jesus anatema. Jesus is anathema. That's a possibility. We really don't know exactly what was going on there. Another logical question. How could such a statement have been tolerated in the church or even approved by someone in the church? Well, it is possible also, and I say we don't know exactly what was going on here, but it's possible that there were some early forms of the false teaching, the first major heresy that came, to be, uh, that came to infiltrate churches in the first and second century, known as Gnosticism. If you would like this message on Compact Disc, let me know and we'll send it to you. You'll receive the entire message, not just the portion on today's program.